Well, good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridgetop Church, and uh, we've been working our way through Genesis oh so slowly, um, and we're just in Genesis 2. We've been doing this, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks, something like that. And just when you thought last week that maybe we were done with the creation story, there's yet another creation story in Genesis chapter 2. Um, we read this part of Genesis 1 last week in regard to the making, the creating of human beings. So Genesis 1:26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we learned last, uh, two weeks ago, that that was the culmination, the, the grand finale of Genesis 1, of the creation of the cosmos. And what we see there, God creating human beings, male and female, which is not a new innovation because animals are created male and female, but also created in the image of God, which is an innovation that we haven't seen yet in the creation story. And this is why we said that the, the creation of human beings is like a grand finale, right? It's because they're created in the image of God, that somehow seen human beings are imaging or revealing the unseen God. And that part of how they do that, or at least two broad categories, is through procreation and through administration. So they're procreating, they're filling up the world with more image bearers, and they're administrating, they're stewarding the, the cosmos that has been entrusted to them uh, by God. And Genesis, at this point, is not done telling us about the creation of human beings. We can think of Genesis 1 as a kind of zoom out, a God's eye view of the creation. We can think of Genesis 2 as a zoom in, more of a human, human eye view. Um, similar to what my family does in, in family group chat, when a picture is sent in the family group chat, and then as a joke, my children will find a little something in the picture and they will crop it out and they will zoom in and then repost it and then, you know, shame dad or another one of their siblings uh, or, or their mom uh, saying, look at this little thing that's so funny. And I know most of you, have, you've done this, right? Uh, except here, it's not a zooming in uh, to something that's shameful. It's a zooming in to something that is more glorious than anything else in the created order, this creating of human beings. And, and I think this passage, though it's an ancient pas passage, it is so helpful to us in 2023. Uh, we are very confused in 2023 about what a human is and what a human is for. We're really struggling to answer these very basic questions that you would think by now in our enlightened state, that we would have this down, what a human is and what a human uh, is for. For you budding philosophers, we're talking about our ontology, right? What, what are we in terms of our being and our teleology? What are we for? What is our purpose? 
And these are the two questions that we'll be answering as we go through this text. And it won't be like, okay, let's talk about ontology for 30 minutes and let's talk about teleology for 20 minutes. It, it's all going to be folded in on itself because these are very related, right? What, what am I? And that helps me understand what I'm for. Um, in regard to, to human beings, so far we've learned in Genesis 1 that humans uh, are not just a, a physical body, but somehow they are also something spiritual. They, they have some kind of, of uh, spiritual uh, essence, which we'll get more at in Genesis 2. But as, as that's being um, questioned now, it's like, well, maybe humans are only physical. You know, you start looking up the ontology of human beings. Some of the things you're going to find on the interwebs are, no, we're just physical. We're just hormones and cells and electricity, and that's it. And then other things are going to say, well, we are body and soul, but those are very separate. And others are going to say, well, no, they're actually integrated. Body and soul are one thing. Or it's not really a soul, it's the mind and the brain. And so, I mean, you start, uh, you know, surfing the internet about these things, and these questions um, are all over the place, and the answers are all over the place. Um, there's, there's also conversations about the gender of human beings, right? And this, this is related to the body and soul uh, question that is biological sex integrated with my sense of self or my sense of soul? Or are those things separate? Is it possible that I have a biological sex that's one thing and then my sense of self or my soul is another thing? Or is gender not a thing? Is it a social construct maybe and, and it should just be thrown out all together, or is if there is gender, then is there, are there appropriate ways to express that gender? Are those societal constructs? Um, and then speaking of gender, is it binary, or are there hundreds of genders or thousands of genders? So, again, a lot of a lot of confusion. Like, what is a human, and what is the purpose of a human being? It would be really great if we could go back to the beginning. And find out from the designer of human beings what a human being is and the purpose of a human being. And it turns out we can do that. We can. Genesis 1 and 2. It's a place where we can go back to the beginning. We can find out about both the ontology and the teleology of human beings. Now, these verses we're looking at may not answer all these questions. Uh, they may open up more questions. I, I realize that. Um, and it's partly why we go to Lazarus after church and talk about the sermon, because there's, there's a lot of questions. I think especially in this sermon, that will be brought to the forefront. And those that are listening on podcasts, which are probably going to be more than usual because the BSM students are on uh, retreat, you can reach out to me on my email, robert at richtopchurch.org, and we can set up a coffee and we can talk about the things that you're hearing in this sermon. So let's take a look at Genesis 2, and let's start with verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now it mentions that there's no one to work the ground. It's getting at something about human beings that 
part of our dominion over the earth is to cultivate and steward the wild creation that God has made. Last week we talked about how God has made us to rest, and it's the first day sort of on the job that Adam and Eve experience is a day of rest. And it helped us understand the terms of relationship between God and humans, that it starts with grace. God initiates grace, and then out of that grace, we respond with worship and obedience. Part of that obedience is work. And so we're made for both rest and work. There's something very human about work. Animals don't really work. They do things out of instinct for the most part. Uh, They're doing what they need to survive. Uh, We, in contrast, can exercise a great amount of intentionality. We can think through plans. We can execute those plans. Uh, Birds in the backyard are making their nests the same way birds in the backyard have made nests for millennia, right? Like this, this is, this, they're not really able to work like a human being. But work is not just human. It's also divine because God works. Back in Genesis 2, 2 and 3 that we read last week, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, last week I emphasized the rest part. Now I'm emphasizing the work part. That God works, and that means that as in his image bearers, right, that we also do work. That we're imaging God when we're working. And so we can see even in work, combination of our ontology and our teleology, right? Our ontology, we are in the image of God, and he works, therefore we work. And it helps us to understand our purpose or part of our purpose as his human image bearers. Now, we find God at work in the very next verses. Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 2, Genesis 2. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God's doing some really astounding creative work here. Um, he's now creating human beings, and, and much like uh, he created the, the cosmos out of the watery chaos, right? So now he's starting with dirt, and out of dirt he's creating a very complex human being. There's a play on words here where he's creating Adam, which is really the Hebrew word for human, out of the Adama, the dirt. So he's creating Adam out of the Adama. It's sort of like creating Mr. Potato Head out of a potato, right? Is that Adam is being created out of dirt. And God, the consummate, consummate artist, is forming this dirt into a human being. Cells and tissues, organs and systems all the complexities of a human body, right? And, and creating the cosmos out of the watery chaos, is, it's amazing. This is amazing too. It's on a smaller scale, and we're getting to see this amazing complexity that's being created out of the chaos of dirt. But we still don't have a human being. Even though we have a human body, we don't have a human being. 
There's no life in this body. It's not animated. So how does God animate this human body? He breathes into Adam's nostrils. It's like some kind of divine mouth-to-mouth, except it's not resuscitation, it's animation. For the very first time ever, this body is becoming alive. And when he breathes this life into him, it declares him to be a living, and and the Hebrew word there is nefesh. And different translations, English translations, try to get at this word. So ESV says a living creature. Uh, New American Standard says a living person. King James says a living soul, which is somewhat reductionistic because he's not just a soul. He's not just an immaterial self. He's also a material self. And both of those are integrated into a person. And so you've got a body, and then when the soul comes in, there's life. This is what happens in death is that these are disintegrated. The body and soul come apart, and then you have death. And we'll talk more about that um, next week. And so he's, he's, he's a living person. He's not just a body, nor is he a disembodied soul who's like looking for a body as an afterthought. He is a body and a soul integrated. Um, so we, we, we have a human now who is both spiritual but also physical. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this uh, this slide where humans are not mere animals, but they have physical bodies like animals that are created out of the dust, which we'll find out later in the passage. This is what this is how animals are made. Yet they are they've been given a, a soul. They've been given a, the breath of life from God, which gives them uh, a, an attachment to the divine, right? And so they're they're in this in between part of having a body and a soul. This is helping you get to get to know your ontology. What is a human? That's probably the simplest uh, understanding of what is a human. Um, this human is then put into the garden to work the garden. All right. So he's got his ontology. Now he's ready to do uh, a task to work and keep the garden. We read about that in Genesis two eight that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have Adam placed in this garden that God has created, uh, that he has, has tended and worked himself. So he's modeling for Adam what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, when he puts him in this, and it describes it as a very lush garden. It's got water source, it's got beautiful trees, it, it's got minerals, it's, it's got everything you need for human thriving. And God has placed the human in this lush garden where he can live and he can thrive. Uh, verse 15, I'm going to skip a little bit of that. Um, I'll let Ren say all the hard to pronounce stuff and then I skip over it. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Uh, So it's repeating that. I want you to see that, that God has carefully placed Adam in that garden. And then the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now we see some more instructions to the human. 
not just tend this garden and work it, but there's some trees in the garden, and uh, they're responsible to God to eat of the tree of life and not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I think it makes sense that trees were used in this kind of laboratory of choice for human beings. Trees are amazing. Uh, in the natural world, they're like the most amazing plant, uh, I think. I mean, they can grow unbelievable, in an unbelievable size. They uh, produce shade. Uh, they can uh, provide food, depending on the tree. They can um, provide maple syrup. I mean, come on, this is amazing. Um, lumber, they can be burned for fuel. They even are filtering out pollutants, right? Like, like trees are amazing. And we'll talk more about trees next week. Um, but these, these big, I assume, beautiful trees are in the garden, and, and they're, they're, they're given to Adam, and there's some instructions regarding those trees. To eat from this tree, don't eat from this other tree. Um, and this tree of life seems good to eat. It seems that it gives some major health benefits. We don't know exactly what's going on there. Uh, and that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not good to eat. And it doesn't just mean it's poisonous and that you'll, you'll, you'll have a physical death if you eat of this poisonous tree. But there's something else going on there. Literally in the Hebrew there, it says, if you eat from this, you will die, die. It's like double die um, or doomed to die. And so it's not just physical death, but it's a condemned to death. It's like a sentencing. If you, if you eat from this tree, there will be a sentencing, and the, the consequences of that act will be death. More on that next week in chapter 3. So we're building some ontology, some teleology here, and I'm throwing out those terms um, partly because if you get in some conversations at a philosophical level, it's good to know some terms and to know some, some things that are being said so you can enter in with a Christian uh, understanding of ontology and, and teleology. So ontology, we are unique creations of God. We're made in His image. Uh, we have a material body and an immaterial soul, and we're integrated, right? So there's a little summation of what we've talked about. Teleology, we're responsible to God. Right? He is the ultimate sovereign, the one who has ultimate authority. Uh, and consequently, we're responsible for stewarding the cosmos that he has entrusted to us, also responsible to obey his commands, eating the tree, not eating of the other tree. So it seems like we're done, right? It, it, it feels that way. It, was, it felt that way in Genesis 1, where we got to the end before, right before humans were created, and it was like, oh, cool, we got a, we got a universe, it's amazing. Genesis 2, a little similar. It's, it's like, okay, we got Adam, he's in the garden, he's got his commands, we're ready to roll, but we're not. We're not done. We have a grand finale. We have a culmination. We have a crown of this creation. And it's woman. It's woman. Verse 18 sets up this creation of woman this way. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is the first not good that we've heard so far. Everything has either been good are very good. So this is very intentional, this language of it's not good. That God is saying to Adam, it's not good. You're alone. Which on the surface sounds kind of strange because he has God. I mean, what else does he need? And God lets him know, no, it, you actually 
are alone, and that's a problem. And we need to remedy this problem of your aloneness. Um, now, why is it not good? Why is it not good that a human is alone? Well, in Genesis 1 and some of 2, it, it, we're, we're having some of the reasons hinted at. So, uh, one is that human beings are created to be in relationship if they're created in the image of a, a God who's in community, right? So if God is three in one, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, then it makes sense that he would create human beings in a way that are fitted for community. But also that humans, that Adam needs someone to collaborate with to accomplish the mission, he can't do this by himself. Um, and so he, he needs to be able to do the mission of procreation and administration. And there ain't no way he's going to do either one of those well uh, or one of those at all without a woman. Um, let's talk about a couple of those. So, so design for relationships, right? Uh, when you start to, to think more about human beings and their capabilities, they really are fit for relationships one reason is they have language. Why would you need language if you didn't need to talk to anyone? And so human beings are able to, to speak in such a way that they can share their deepest thoughts, their feelings, their questions, their ideas, their joys, their sorrows. Uh, dogs and honeybees and raccoons, they cannot do that. I don't know if you noticed, but human beings can do that. I mean, maybe in a Disney movie, but those things aren't real, okay? Sorry. Um, so, so, even as you think about humans' capabilities, they, they have the capability for language. And so, of course, they're created to be in deep relationships with other human beings. But again, it's not just about relating. It's also about being on mission, right? Accomplishing what God has asked them to do. And so Adam cannot procreate without a wife. Right? This is how the animals are working, and this is how uh, human beings are going to uh, work as well, but also to do the administration part, to care for the cosmos that's been entrusted to him. He's not going to be able to do that alone. He's going to need to collaborate with other human beings and uh, to, to, to do that. Now, once God declares it's not good that you're alone, then they go on a hunt for a suitable helper, right? Verse 19 of Genesis 2, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. So there's that out of the ground, beasts and birds of the heavens are brought uh, forth. And they're brought to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So Adam and God are doing some multitasking. And they're naming the animals, and they're looking for a suitable helper simultaneously. And this naming of the animals is a way that Adam is showing his authority over and responsibility for the animals. And I'm, and I'm sure it's a little strange for him. God's like, what do you want to call that one? And Adam's like, you can't come up with a name for that God? I mean, come on, you need me? He's like, no, I'm delegating my authority here. <laughs> You're responsible. You're responsible. I, w I want you to name this animal. Um, and so it's not just out of, the, 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 we don't just name things out of efficiency. We also name them 
because we were in authority over and responsible for uh, these things. And we don't just name animals. We name streets. We name towns. We name buildings. We name floors. We name rooms. We name all kinds of stuff, right? This is what we do. And yes, it's for efficiency. And yes, it's so Google Maps can tell us how to get places. But it's also a means of showing an authority over and a responsibility for the things in this world. We're still naming animals. Uh, This snake was named, this snake is from Peru, and it just got its name, and they named it after Harrison Ford, who really (laughs) hates snakes in in terms of his character in Indiana Jones, and so they decided to name it that, which I can't pronounce, but uh, you can look it up online and you can find out more if you want to. Um, but we're still finding new things. We're finding new, new, new bacterias and snakes and animals and stars and galaxies. And what do we do? We name them. We name them. And it is a part of, of, of having authority over responsibility for things in the cosmos. So they're able to accomplish that, but they don't accomplish their, their second item on the to-do list that day, uh, which was to find a suitable helper. Um, And so there isn't the right kind of creation to remedy his aloneness or to find someone to help him in the tasks that he's been given to do. So God creates one. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so here we see God creating the first woman. And uh, th- again, this, this is the, the final creation in this cosmology, right? It is the crowning achievement of God's creation. She is the seven-song encore uh, of Genesis 2. She's created differently than the man, right? The man is created from dirt, And the woman is created from another human, from his side. Barbara Mauser in her Bible study entitled Five Aspects of Woman states it this way, a woman is created from a human and for a human. Um, And so remember, God had said before, it's not good that you're alone, Adam. And so Eve created from his side and for a human, right, is one of the reasons is for to remedy this aloneness, um, and so what we what we see happening here uh, is a, a human who is the same as Adam, but also different. The same, but also different. This idea that men and women are different—it's a biblical uh, idea. Uh, I, I asked ChatGPT if. Women bring different strengths to the workplace, and if men bring different strengths to the workplace, I was kind of wondering, what would, what would ChatGPT say? Here's, here's the list that it gave me, okay? One of those is the dude list, and one of those is the, the, the woman list. Which one do you think is which? Which one is what women bring to the workplace, do you think? Is it the one on the left or the right? You don't even want to say it out loud, do you? Oh, someone says the left. Oh, yeah. You'd be right. It's, it's the left. 
Um, and and you, it's interesting because it's a lot of relational stuff, right? Effective communication, empathy, emotional intelligence, collaboration, teamwork, right? There's a lot, there's a lot of, of that. Now, ChatGPT was quick to warn me, now, do not stereotype women with particular traits and men with particular traits, and ChatGPT is absolutely right. We, we don't ever want to say, these traits are only men and these traits are only women, right? And say it with that voice of low voice, high voice, right? <laughs> but we can acknowledge that men and women are different and that men and women do have some superpowers that are unique to their gender. And so you, you, you have this complementarity being displayed in Genesis 2 of a man and a woman. Didn't know you had superpowers, did you? But now you do. Um, now, there's more going on here than, than just they work well together. They bring strengths to the workplace. Um, in verse 23, we, we hear Adam say this when he sees the woman brought forth. He says, then the man said... This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. This is the first time Adam speaks in the narrative, right? And it's poetry about his wife, basically. It's the first look, right? This is a first look of, of my oldest son and his bride. Isn't that an awesome picture? So I don't know if you've seen this first look thing. It's before the, the, the actual ceremony, and they are back-to-back, -back and they have not seen each other, and then they turn. And this was his reaction. So, something similar going on here with Adam, where he says, At last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right? Uh, Abigail Favale, who's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, uh, she writes in her book, The Genesis of gender, that Adam's declaration of at last is an expression of both delight and relief. That had to be a hard day, right, of going through all the animals, naming all the animals, and then God's like, well, I guess there's no suitable helper for you, buddy, right? But to experience this first look of the one who had been given to him uh, as a, a, a companion, to remedy his aloneness and to work alongside of him uh, in the task that God had given him. Um, Favale points out that even the way their biologically sexed bodies are created shows that they're built for interpersonal communion, right? I mean, animals don't participate in the, se the sex act face-to-face. -face. Only humans do that. And so it, it's... it's describing a reality, an ontology, if you will, of this interpersonal communion. Um, and so it's, it's, it's relational. It's not just, okay, we got to get some procreation done here. It's, there's a relational aspect to it. I mean, everything here is screaming intimacy, right? And Eve is taken from Adam's side. And so what we see here is a reuniting of Adam to some degree with his own self. There's no more intimate picture. So it's not just a unification, it's a 
reunification. This is why he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He sees it as a, a reunification of, uh, of sorts with himself. And again, the intimacy is possible because of the, the complementarity of their bodies that God has created. And they are, again, the same. They're both human. They're both image bearers, but they're also different. And so they, they are displaying something that is uh, a maleness and a femaleness. And he declares that, right? Adam declares that. He says, you are an Isha, a woman. And then he says, I am an Ish, a man. And this is the first time that these words have been used. Before, it was just Adam, human. Now, he actually understands better himself as he sees her. He goes, oh, you're an Isha. I am an Ish. And how does he know that? Merely by seeing her physical body. She body forths who she is, right? This, talk about this integration between who you are in your immaterial self and who you are in your material self. They're, they're being shown to be integrated. And so she's bodying forth who she is, who herself is. Uh, Favale writes that Eve makes a silent declaration with her body. She is ontologically a woman and literally bodying forth the truth about her identity. Now, the narrator of Genesis then makes a comment about what's just happened. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve from that day forward, which is every human being, get to participate in this same one flesh union that's being displayed in Genesis 2. This is a human institution, the first one given to human beings by God. And so the, 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 the narrator's making sure that we understand this is not just a one-time deal where Adam and Eve get to experience this. This is actually something that's an institution that human beings will join in from that day forward. It is the first God-given institution. And Marriage, too, has an ontology and a teleology, right? And so what is marriage? We see in Genesis 2, it's a man, a woman, in covenant for a lifetime. That's what it is. It's an ontology. And what is it for? Well, so far we can see what it's for is remedying aloneness, is the first thing that's mentioned, and then a two-person complementary team that is carrying out the procreation and the administration that's been entrusted to human beings. Now, you might be thinking, well, aren't we kind of over the whole Old Testament? I mean, come on. And th there are some professing Christians that would handle this passage in just that same way. They would just say, well, that's Old Testament. We just focus on what Jesus taught and what Jesus said, right? Well, the problem with that is that Jesus actually teaches from Genesis 1 and 2 when he's asked about sexuality and marriage. So Matthew 19, some of the religious leaders are asking him about um, marriage and divorce. It says the Pharisees came up to him. They tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus there affirms both Genesis 1, when he says he created the male and female, and Genesis 2, it became one flesh. This is kind of, he kind of mashes them together. Uh, so Jesus sees a, a, a kind of a continuity, not kind of, a continuity between Genesis 1 and 2. It's partly why I feel confident I can teach it this way. is because Jesus does the same thing in, in Genesis 1 and 2. He, he stitches it together in a continuity. So let's try to summarize some of these thoughts. Right? And, and partly why I'm teaching it this way is, is, is because it is a story, and there's just so many symbols and images that are just coming at you from all kinds of places, right? And so that may be what this sermon feels like. But here's at least kind of four summary statements of things I've already said that may help to clarify some things. So number one, humans are designed by God. Human beings are designed by God. This means we get our ontology, who we are, and our teleology, what we're for, from God. I think that's a, there's a relief there. There's a relief there. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to base it on my own experience. I can go back to inspired scripture and I can hear from God, who am I and how do I live out this ontology? Christians are essentialists. There's some more terms for you as opposed to constructionists. We are essentialists as opposed to constructionists. So constructionists believe that you're constructing or shaping society with your language. And, and we say, no, actually, we are calling out what is real with our language. Uh, Favali points this out in her book, again, Genesis of Gender, great book, very helpful. But she says in Genesis 1, God uses language to make reality. And in Genesis 2, humans use language to name reality. That's a very essentialist kind of statement, that we're, we're, we're seeing the essence of something, we're calling it out, we're, we're, ca we're calling it something. And this is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. There's actually an unexpected agreement about essentialism with the trans community right now, uh, because many in the trans community are essentialists. They're saying, I have an essence that I want you to call a certain thing with your language. And so it's an essentialist kind of an argument. And most professing Christians are saying yes to the essentialism, yes to the isness, um, but that our understanding of that essence is not to come from our experience alone. It's to come from God and His Word. So we're going back to God and His Word. We're looking at that for our understanding of the essence of humans, of the isness of humans, the ontology of humans, and then we're calling it according to that. So humans are designed by God. Number two, humans as being designed by God, are, they display an integration and a differentiation. So we talked about a lot about this uh, in this sermon. So they're an integration of body and soul, Right? They're, they're an integrated whole. Uh, they're also an integration of gender and biological sex. Right? This is all one package. 
Um, and so as, as, as a biblical Christian, our understanding is that we're not uh, some, some soul out here and a body out here, or we're a soul that wants to escape our body, or we're, we're ensouled bodies, or we're embodied souls. This is, this is who we are. And that does play into the understanding of gender, that my biological body is integrated with my sense of self. And so I, I am what my body is saying I am. If my body's saying I'm an Isha, I'm an Isha. If my body's saying I'm an Ish, I'm an Ish, what we read in Genesis 2. So in contrast, like gender theory would say, no, it's a, actually d- disintegration of those things. So early, early gender theory or queer theory, uh, the, the symbol was uh, a triangle. Keep going. Yep. And the reason it was a triangle was because of these three dynamics. Okay? And so they'd say, well, you have a biological, uh, a biological sex. Your body is a bio- biological sex of a male and a female. But you also have a sense of self, your, your gender. And then you have an orientation in terms of a sexual attraction. And they're saying this is disintegrated. These things don't have to be uh, in alignment. So if you have a biological male body, you don't have to think that you're a male. You could actually think you're a female. They're disintegrated, right? And the scripture is teaching these things are integrated in Genesis 2. Now, that's, that was the simple version like back in the early 2000s. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I don't want to even begin to pretend that I could explain uh, gender theory as it currently is, but that is the simple version of the understanding. And again, I say these things to, to help you think about the ideas that you're wrestling with, ideas you're coming into conversation with, so that you have some tools to, to talk about, to think about uh, these things through a biblical lens. That's the integration piece. There's also the differentiation piece. So that differentiation between men and, wo- and women. We, we value differences between men and women. They do have different superpowers, and we acknowledge those things, although we don't want to stereotype those things to the point that we're like, well, men can't cry, and women can't do this or that. Uh, it's more a celebration and an acknowledgement that, in general, these, these strengths, these superpowers exist. And one of the superpowers that a, a woman has is to be able to carry a, a child in their body for nine months, have that child, feed that child with their body. And I know in this day and age, it's like, oh, that's just so horrible and oppressive. No, it's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> and we've just got to watch it with our daughter-in-law, and it's just amazing. Right? And it is a superpower that she has, that I don't have, that my son does not have. And even now, as, as they're raising this baby, she's feeding this baby. My son's doing everything he can to support and help and encourage and clean the house and do the thing. But he cannot keep that baby alive. He does not have those superpowers. Um, and and it's, it's pretty amazing to watch the two of them work together in fulfilling a mission that God has entrusted to them as new parents. So humans are both integrated. They're also differentiated. So number three, human beings need community. We need community. It's not good for human beings to be alone. And marriage and the family are one of the ways, and it's a major way, that God has remedied aloneness. Um, 
in the ancient world, you lived with your family, right? And then if you got married and you were a woman, you went and then lived with the, your husband's family. Uh, so you never left your family. You, you were working in the family business and, and just added another room onto the family house and continued to, to live and collaborating with your family in whatever they were doing. In the modern world, most of us, when, when we graduate from college, we go off and make our way. And we do that oftentimes alone. There's a lot of talk right now about people in the modern world being atomized, right? They, they are single, solitary little atoms just bouncing around out in society, and they don't have the kind of community and relationships that um, they need. And it turns out, who knew? It's not good to be atomized, right? Well, of course, we, we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we, we can see in our ontology, in our teleology, of course it's not good to be uh, alone, and so, obviously, the, the institution of marriage is one of those ways that God has remedied aloneness. Um, but it also means if, if you're not married, that you need to be intentional about building relationships and friendships with people. And one of the institutions that God has given us for that is the church, right? This is partly why it's really good to devote yourself to a local body of believers. We're doing membership class on Friday. Here's a, here's a little pub right here in the middle of the sermon. We're, we're doing this membership class where we're devoting ourselves to be a member of this church. You should, you should come. You should devote yourself to this body of believers. And it's part of taking yourself out of this atomized existence and being part of a, a spiritual family in a local church setting. Number four, marriage is designed by God. This created complementarity of the biological sex is on purpose. It's, it's intentional. It's designed to, to be unified in a lifelong marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And, and this is the, the, the foundation of a, a human society. Uh, I don't care what anyone says. If, if you don't have healthy moms, dads, and children, your society is going to crumble. And indeed, to some degree, it is already in, in the U.S. Right? because of this. Like, this is a human institution that is a building block in the foundation of human society, and it's good. Right? Now, you may hear all that and say, well, it sounds good, but we got to go out in this real world out here, and this kind of stuff you're saying is very hard to hear, and it's especially hard to hear out in the world. There's questions that come up of, well, what if I'm a biological male or female whose sense of self is opposite my biological self, right? Sometimes called gender dysphoria. It's a major struggle for, for many, some of you included, most likely. What, what if I'm attracted to persons of the same sex, right? Or what if I'm intersex, which means you're displaying female and male characteristics. There's about 16 different physiological states that would be declared intersex. What if I just hate that God made me a man or hate that God made me a, a woman? And a whole host of other questions and struggles. Um, and so... My message to you as you wrestle with those things and many other questions in that realm is that God loves you. God loves you. 
God is moving toward you. And he's doing this in a very gracious and truth-filled way. Um, it means that his church is to move toward all, including those that are struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, walking alongside those in our churches and out in the world. And yes, as we do that, we're going to seek God for an abundance of grace to live according to his design, and we're also going to hold to his truth. And again, we're going to do that with grace, but we're, we're not going to apologize for it. We're not going to compromise on it. We're going to continue to found ourselves, our understanding of what human beings are, what they're for, on the word of God. And you may say, well, how do you know this, this God loves you? Right? How, do, how do I know that? Well, partly you know that because God the Son became a nephesh for you. He took on a human nature, both an integrated body and soul. You talk about moving toward us. This, this, this is a, an amazing, loving, moving toward us as the divine Son of God takes on the human nature of body and soul. But not only that, He did that for a purpose, not just to move toward us, but to die on behalf of us. Because He knew that the, the sin of disintegration that was occurring, not just in our gender and our body and soul, but everything else in the world, was never going to be put back together if He didn't die in our place and pay for the, the, the payment we uh, deserved, but also to recreate us. There's this moment in, in John 20, which we actually read in, in the prayer time this morning, where Jesus appears in His resurrected body, and He shows you know, His nail prints, His scars to His disciples, and then He breathes on them. And He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's like creating a Nefesh 2.0. He, he who was the creator, which John says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Was recreated through the gospel. Right? So no, no matter what disintegration we're experiencing, whether it's related to gender or related to sexual orientation or a whole host of other things, because we all are experiencing that disintegration because of sin. God has come in human form to offer grace so that we can be forgiven but also put back together. Right? And, and we have walked with so many who have wrestled with so many different things and have leaned into God's word and leaned into his grace and relied on his Holy Spirit and did everything, you know, totally get changed and, and totally transformed? No. But were they given grace and mercy in the gospel and given what they needed to actually be a devoted follower of Jesus? True to his word? Yes. Yes. And it was, it was beautiful. And it's messy and it's hard and it's difficult and it takes a lot of prayer and walking with each other. But there's hope, right? And so if you, you find yourself in that place where you're, you're feeling dysphoric about gender or you're feeling same-sex attraction or some, something else in that category or any other category, know that the gospel is enough. His grace is enough. Um, and through the power of the Spirit, he can reanimate us uh, with new life. 